Welcome to Black Music Matters. Since this is March, Women's History Month, I think it's a good time to shed light on the under-acknowledged contributions that black women have made to the development of rock and roll. The title of this podcast, Black Diamond Queens, comes from a book by ethnomusicologist Maureen Mahan. A book of nearly 400 pages, and almost 100 of those pages are notes which tells me Black Diamond Queens is a very meticulously researched work. So with confidence and permission, I often quote from Black Diamond Queens, which concentrates on the years 1953 to 1984. 1953, when Big Mama Thornton's version of Hound Dog hit the charts and reached number one, where it stayed for seven weeks. Then three years later, Elvis's version of Hound Dog came out and reached number one where it remained for 11 weeks. Seven weeks, 11 weeks? Not much of a difference, you may think. But there was a world of difference. Thornton's record was labeled rhythm and blues, a term which the music industry used to indicate the music was made by black artists and was to be marketed to a black audience. Songs on the rhythm and blues charts were not played on major radio stations in 1953 nor were they sold in most record stores. But Elvis was white, and so he was on the pop charts. His record was widely available in record stores and played on major radio stations. And Elvis recorded for RCA Victor, a major record label, with money to spend on publicity and distribution. And so Elvis's record sold in the millions. Big Mamas sold around 500,000. Naturally, Thornton was angry that no matter how talented she was as a black woman, her chance of having the kind of success Elvis was having was not for her. During one interview, she was asked if Elvis ever gave her anything for Hound Dog. Nothing, she answered, nothing, which was the proper amount. Nothing was owed to her from Elvis or from the many other artists that recorded Hound Dog after her. Now, if Elvis had closely copied her style, legally he didn't owe her anything. But you might say that morally he should have compensated her for her artistry. But he didn't sing the song as she did and didn't use the same lyrics. The rendition he closely copied was made by a Las Vegas lounge act called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys. The money due Mama Thornton for recording the record and the money due Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller for writing the song was to be paid by the company that recorded her version, Peacock Records. Since the record she made didn't bring in much money, Big Mama Thornton had to greatly depend on her live performances. While singing in a bar in San Francisco, she performed a song she had written called Ball and Chain. In the audience was one of the most successful and widely known rock stars, Janis Joplin, who loved the song and asked Thornton's permission to perform and then later to record it. The song would become one of Janis Joplin's biggest hits and soon Joplin became Thornton's biggest champion, bringing attention to the fact that Big Mama Thornton wrote the song and named Thornton as one of her biggest influences. Joplin also helped Thornton get better gigs and even had Thornton as the opening act at some of her performances. Thornton's Ball and Chain was included 
on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's list of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. That was a lovely music history story from the 1960s. And now for some not-so-pretty stories about the horrid cover records of the 1950s. Though the practice of one record label recording a song after it became a hit on another label had been going on since the beginning of the recording industry. But the famous cover records that started appearing in the mid-1950s capitalized on racism and segregation. As soon as a record label that didn't record black artists would see a record by a black artist climb to the top of the rhythm and blues charts, that label would get a white artist to record the song. Most white artists were not great at copying closely. Pat Boone was known for his horrid cover records. But Georgia Gibbs was great at copying a singer's style. And her record company, Mercury Records, would use the same musical arrangements as the original records. Her copies would then overshadow the originals. And some of those cover records became Gibbs's biggest hits. Three of the top female rhythm and blues artists that were hurt by Georgia Gibbs' cover records were Ruth Brown, Etta James, and Laverne Baker. Though all three spoke out against the practice of making such exact copies, it was Laverne Baker who was the most vocal. In addition to lobbying Congress for legal protection, Baker resorted to humor to deal with the problem. When preparing for a 1957 tour of Australia and Japan, Baker purchased a flight insurance policy for the trip and instructed her manager to send word of the policy to a columnist at the Chicago Defender, the preeminent African-American newspaper. The note said, Laverne, who leaves for a personal appearance tour on January 3rd for Australia, sent an air travel insurance policy to Georgia Gibbs and named Miss Gibbs the beneficiary. According to the defender, the policy was sent with this explanatory note. Dear Georgia, it said, Inasmuch as I'll be flying over quite a stretch of blue water on my forthcoming Australian tour, I am naturally concerned about making the round trip safely and soundly. My thoughts naturally turn to you at this time, and I am enclosing an insurance policy on my life in the amount of $125,000. This should be at least partial compensation for you if I should be killed or injured, and thereby deprive you of the opportunity of copying my songs and arrangements in the future. Billboard magazine soon dubbed Baker, Laverne, don't steal my arrangements, Baker. Eventually, Laverne Baker, Ruth Brown, and Etta James were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it took a while for any female rock and roll artist to become inducted during the Hall of Fame's first five years of induction ceremonies, 1986 to 1990. There were 44 performers inducted during those years, 42 males, and only one female artist, Aretha Franklin, and one female group, the Supremes. In 1991, only two females were inducted, Laverne Baker and Tina Turner. And Tina Turner was inducted as the duo Ike and Tina Turner. Tina would later be inducted as a solo artist, but not until 2021. 
If you look for an image to represent rock and roll, most likely it's going to be a white male with an electric guitar. But in reality, the person who invented modern electric guitar playing, who introduced the sound-changing technique of distortion, was neither white nor male. It was Sister Rosetta Tharp. Her 1945 hit, Strange Things Happening Every Day, has been called the first rock and roll record, and Rosetta Tharp was dubbed godmother of rock and roll. Such well-known rock guitarists as Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Eric Clapton have all recognized her as their greatest influence, and yet it took the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 30 years to induct her, not as a performer, but in the early influencer category, a category that also includes, strangely, Nat King Cole, the man who sang the song, Mr. Cole Won't Rock and Roll. And Nina Simone was honored as a performer of rock and roll. I wish she had been around at that time. I can't even imagine how upset she would have been and how she would have ripped into those who had the power to decide that she was a rock and roll singer. Dolly Parton was recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though she politely objected to the honor by saying she would gladly accept, but only after she made her first rock and roll album. Well, they inducted her anyway. I know it's all about the money and getting people to pay outrageous ticket prices to attend the induction ceremonies, but I think it wouldn't matter much if a few true rock and rollers, along with the big name crowd pleasers, were inducted. What would it have cost the Hall of Fame to add Faye Adams, a hit maker in the 1950s? Her record, Shake a Hand, was a rhythm and blues hit for 10 weeks and later was recorded by such rock icons as Elvis Presley, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Jackie Wilson, Ike and Tina Turner. Ah, Tina Turner. The last chapter of the book, Black Diamond Queens, is all about Tina Turner. After breaking up with Ike in 1976, she struggled a bit. But then in 1984, her multi-platinum album, Private Dancer, was released. And she soon became known as the undisputed queen of rock and roll at age 45. Tina Turner influenced many male superstars. Rod Stewart relied heavily on her vocal style. Mick Jagger borrowed from her dancing. And one of the first songs Jagger practiced while developing his capacity as a blues singer was Ike and Tina's 1961 hit, It's Gonna Work Out Fine written in part by a female, Rosemary McCoy. Sorry I can't play that song for you, but hopefully the next podcast of Black Music Matters will have rights to some of the music discussed. So till next time, this is Arlene Corsano wishing you days that are filled with peace, joy, and music.